As chairman of the uh, events committee, it's my privilege to welcome you all here this evening uh, on behalf of Penn, the American Writers Association. Uh, this is the 27th in a series of conversations that began in 1978 uh, between distinguished foreign writers and uh, their American uh, counterparts. Uh, it's a series that's included such writers as Crystal Wolf, Amos Oz, Octavio Paz, Achebe, and as you know, tonight our distinguished foreign writer is Michael Andachi, and he will be speaking with uh, our well-known novelist, John Irving. Um, our thanks tonight to the uh, Canadian Consul General for his generous help in making this evening possible. Uh, I must say, after the uh, discussion is over, uh, there will be a reception in the uh, gallery to my right. As a prelude to the, uh, to the discussion, I wanted to read a poem of Michael Andachi's that describes how this writer, born in Ceylon and educated in England and living in Canada, had his imagination seized by the American imagination before birth. This is an early poem in his selected poems. It's called Dates. It becomes apparent that I miss great occasions. My birth was heralded by nothing, was heralded by nothing but the anniversary of Winston Churchill's marriage. No monuments bled, no instruments agreed on a specific weather. It was a seasonal insignificance. I console myself with my mother's eighth month. While she sweated out her pregnancy in Ceylon, a servant ambling over the lawn with a tray of ice drinks, a few friends visiting her to placate her shape, and I drinking the lifelines. Wallace Stevens sat down in Connecticut, a glass of orange juice at his table, so hot he wore only shorts, and on the back of a letter began to write, the well-dressed man with a beard. That night, while my mother slept, her significant belly cooled by the bedroom fan, Stevens put words together that grew to sentences and shaved them clean and shaped them, the page suddenly becoming thought where nothing had been, his head making his hand move where he wanted, and he saw his hand was saying, the mind is never finished, no, never, and I in my mother's stomach was growing as were the flowers outside the Connecticut windows. The Stevens poem alluded to here ends with the line, it can never be satisfied, the mind never. And so to satisfy our minds tonight, Michael Andachi and John Irving. And all tape recorders off, please, thanks. <laughs> Um, just to prepare you, I suppose, for uh, this unlikely wedding, uh, 
I should say that um, uh, Michael and I have reason uh, to talk to each other because we actually have spoken to each other before, um, only um, not when we knew that anyone was listening. Uh, also, we're more or less the same age. Um, he's still 49. Uh, and we've written more or less the same number of, of, of books, although... <laughs> Um, uh, Michael's written three books of poetry, um, four novels, and one um, memoir, and I've been more one note, as, as you probably know, um, in the process. Uh, there are lots of things in this conversation that I want to get to, um, but whether I get to them or not, uh, just to assure you, at, at the end of what seems a reasonable time between us, uh, I'm going to ask... Um, uh, you to ask uh, Michael some questions because I have um, no expectation of, of covering what's on, on, on your mind. But um, uh, just to uh, tell you a little bit um, about uh, his, his background, if you, if you don't know it, um, he was born in um, a colonial uh, Ceylon, now Sri Lanka. Um, he went to school in England at the age of 11, he went to Canada at the age of 19. Um, and at a time when many writers in North America uh, uh, and in Europe um, are uh, really assertively um, announcing their origins, that is, where they come from uh, as the subject of their writing that means the most to them, um, uh, Mr. Andace, uh, interestingly, has, has described himself as shaped by uh, a Canadian aesthetic. I want to, I want to get to that especially. Um, it, it's, it's, it strikes, strikes me that um, um, we Americans know um, much less about um, uh, Canada than we think we know, um, and even less than we know uh, about Europe. Um, but I'd like to begin with an area of, of questioning that, that Michael and I have just sort of nicely uh, talked about uh, before, which is the choice to write uh, historical or what I would loosely call historical uh, novels, um, not only uh, in coming through uh, slaughter, uh, writing about New Orleans in the, in the jazz age, um, and the, the character of, of Buddy Bolden, uh, not only in, in The Skin of a Lion, writing about uh, the immigrant workers in Toronto in the 20s and the 30s, but now once again uh, in The English Patient, um, we have a novel set for the most, uh, for the most part in uh, um, the end of World War II um, in Italy, a Canadian nurse, a Canadian thief, um, now a military spy, um, a Sikh uh, bomb diffuser, and the eponymous uh, English patient uh, himself, an English flyer who's um, badly burned and dying and whose plane has been uh, shot down uh, over Italy. Um, I've written some historical uh, fiction. I think I know why, why I do it. So I, I, I'd sort of like to begin... Um, our area of, of conversation with, with your choice, um, uh, among other things, not to write uh, autobiographical fiction, which is, is something that's very much a, um, 
a presence in the contemporary novel uh, today. And why don't I begin with the assumption that you must have had many letters from former members of bomb disposal units, mm -hmm. um, uh, probably congratulating you for your meticulous uh, research. And I'm sure these letters were more interesting than the letters I received from octogenarian obstetricians and gynecologists um, <laughs> after the Cider House rules. There are only so many exciting cesarean section <laughs> stories that one can tell. I'm sure your mail is more interesting than mine, but just generally think out loud for us for a moment about why write historical novels in the first place? Well, first of all, I did get a couple of letters. The most moving letter was someone who was writing a history of bomb disposal in the Second World War who wanted to know how he could get hold of Kirpal Singh, who was my fictional character. And I haven't had the nerve yet to reply to this one. I'm not quite sure what kind of um, tone to take. Um, I think, well, I think all novels are historical. You know, I think even if it's there's a time lag of just three or four years, it becomes a historical novel. It's not part of our own moment. So in that sense, um, most fiction for me, I think you can read it that way. But certainly um, in the kind of books that I've done, um, I'm not quite sure if it was because it was the alternative to poetry. The fact that I wrote, I began my writing as a poet, and um, that sort of insisted on that autobiographical, that, that moment, that, that, that present moment. Um, um, and so perhaps when I wanted to write a larger sequence, um, the first one I think I wrote was a book called A Man with Seven Toes which was about, a, an again, far away, uh, an Australian uh, convict. And um, so, I mean, that was the, the first place I wrote a longer sequence, and that, again, was far away from me. I'm not quite sure why, except that I think it was a, a form of theater without, without the suggestion that theater is something that's very different from you. I mean, a theater is, can be very personal. The writer, as an actor, uh, wearing the clothes of somebody else, and through that, discovering his or her own story. Uh, I think that's what interests me about the histor historical novel. I don't see the book, the historical novel, as being about that time alone. I see it as being about our time. And I wouldn't be interested in writing a, a time capsule kind of historical novel where I get all the furniture right, but... Um, there's no real relationship between the present and that time. What about um, research, which you obviously take um, very seriously, and, and, and one of the successes in, 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 in your last uh, three um, works of fiction, really, is how that, that research doesn't obtrude. I, mm -hmm. I, I'm aware that whenever I go to the pain to, to learn something that isn't natural to me. Um, 1920s uh, gynecological surgery, for example. Uh, <laughs> I'm so proud of, of the effort I've made that it's difficult to keep all of that out. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> as people have told me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but you do have um, 
uh, a way of, of demonstrating uh, the research, but, but something in the lives of the characters and, and in your language itself uh, keeps it in check. I mean, how, how, how much stuff did you learn that you consciously had to throw away? Well, I'm not quite sure where I, how this works exactly, but I know that when I, because first of all, I'm not quite sure of what the story is going to be about. Uh, but when I start, say, reading up on bomb disposal or the Second World War or what Italy was like in 1945, um, which I did for the English patient, I do a lot more research than I use. And I think there are two, there are two problems. One is that if, if you have too much research, that, that stops you writing a novel, and you're writing uh, a document, or you're collecting a document. And the ideal story for me, the ideal um, source of a story for me is something that's half-finished, uh, in the sense that, um, for instance, in, in this Kinabalan, I was looking for an ideal photographer that I could, uh, a Canadian photographer who was a radical, and I could not find this person. And that saved me from relying on a, a real photographer. So I had to kind of invent a kind of photography that was going on in that book. And um, in uh, the coming through story, the, the story about Buddy Bolden was very, a very unfinished, almost unspoken story. And there was only about half a page of facts. And that allowed me to kind of invent. And without that space for inventing, it's very difficult to write a novel, no matter how much research you do. So. I, I can, there's a danger of too much research, as you said. And I think the other thing is that after having done a, what I do when I'm first writing um, a longer work, like a novel, is um, essentially painting the landscape, painting the background. Um, and a lot of that gets dropped out later on. Uh, so in the process of editing the book, I, there's a kind of time when I start trying to erase as much as I can of the scaffold, of the, the background detail, except for what becomes a part of that, uh, very much a part of that story. And you know, that's when you lose, I think, uh, a lot of stuff you sort of want to hang mm -hmm. on to. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there was a thing about Macedonians all planting a certain kind of blue flower on their front lawns so that they could be recognized in North America. And I was dying to keep this thing in the book, but I just didn't know how to make it stay there without you know, having a little paragraph or aside. And mm -hmm. so I mean, that's a kind of fr very frustrating thing. So I, there is a lot of removal of research um, after the fact, in the yeah. last stages of the book. You said that, that you were writing, and you said this in an, an, another interview I, I, I read with you, that. Um, you're never sure how the story is going to end or what the story is about. And in fact, I think you've said, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, that if you did know how the story ended, you, you, you might be too bored um, <laughs> to, to, to continue. Um, this is so much the opposite from, as we've talked, um, mm -hmm. from the way I work. I never can begin a novel until I think I know almost everything that happens in it. Um, uh, Talk about that, um, writing a story when you don't know how it's going to uh, uh, turn out. This is foreign to me. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you know, it's a lot to do with the structure. Um, I, 
I mean, I usually begin, probably, perhaps because I, I began as a, as a poet, where you begin with an image or you begin with a line or a phrase or the sound of a sentence, and then you start exploring that sentence. And um, there's always seems to be a sort of a kind of curiosity on my part when I begin a novel, whether it's to try and understand a character like Buddy Bolden, who's a real person that I'm sort of turning into a fictional person, in order to understand a factual person, which is a bit odd. But um, that whole idea of trying to go all the way around a character, a historical character, to try and understand that person, um, means that I don't know what, what I'm going to reach at the, at the, at the end of that, that story. And so I sort of kind of drift. I mean, um, there are kind of two stages for me in writing. One, the first stage is the stage of um, reconnaissance, in a way. And, and that, not all of that stays in the final draft of the book, but you know, that mood of trying to kind of hold on to something, trying to kind of catch that fish in some way, is, is there in the book, and there's a certain amount of tension in it, I suppose, as a result of that. But um, once I actually finish the story, uh, not when I actually know what's happened in, in this novel, then I sort of begin again. And I think that's, I don't think we're that far apart, because right. I think that um, once I know what the end of the story is, then I can almost begin it again. And so that there's a process of, uh, editing that often f takes me about two years. So I start, start from the beginning again and start reshaping it and removing or adding stuff so that I'm sure that that's what happens when you... Yes, every time you find a better ending, you rewrite the beginning to make it look as if you knew <laughs> what you were doing from the beginning. Well, I, for, for every book, I know that the last thing I have written is, is, the, is the first uh, two or three pages. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you... Tell me about, uh, in that light, I mean... Uh, Kirpal Singh, uh, Kip, um, uh, the, the Sikh, the, the bomb diffuser, he comes into the English patient rather late in the story. W was he in your mind when you began the story, or, or did he come to you that way? Uh, I have to admit this, that he did come uh, into the story roughly where he turns up in the novel, which sounds appallingly naive on my part. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, but again, subconsciously, I'm sure that, uh, uh, I mean, I was preparing for his entrance. I mean, I was setting up a, a bombed landscape, a, a place full of um, undetonated bombs. And so obviously he had to appear. And uh, <laughs> Somebody had to do it. Somebody yeah. had to do it. Um, and I was very relieved when he turned up. And <laughs> <laughs> so that... Um, no, I mean, I think it, I, something was working uh, towards his entrance. But once he did turn up, then I had this huge problem is do I keep him or send him away or, or what? Um, and no, it did alter the book, uh, alter the direction of the book. And I think I said before that I had imagined the book to be just about these two people, um, the nurse and uh, the burned patient, because they seemed... I really wanted to write a very small book uh, after writing In the Skin of a Lion, which seemed to be... Of a cast of thousands and you know thirty years plot line to kind of hold together, so I just wanted a story about two people in a room talking, and then that past got involved, and so it wasn't just a, a contemporary story. And then the other two characters turned up. Mm -hmm. 
there's a danger in historical fiction when you introduce an event that is not only commonly known in history or commonly known to all of us, to all your readers, but it's one of those events that we all have an emotional opinion about. Um, we've, we've talked about this. The, the, I hesitated for the longest while in a, a prayer for Owen Meany to bring uh, John Kennedy's affair with Marilyn Monroe into the story. The, the danger always is that when you introduce something into, into fiction that everyone already has an opinion about, mm-hmm. at that moment you, you lose control of, of the reader. Um, you're not in control of what the reader thinks about that. And uh, two of not negative um, uh, criticisms I've seen of, of your work but it's inevitable, it seems to me, that your introduction of uh, Hiroshima um, in, in, at the end of the story is going to draw fire from people who feel uh, that this event um, doesn't fit with anything, with anything fictional, and, and specifically are going to take you to task for how it fits in, in, in your novel. Um, uh, one of these reviews said that the, the fit between public event and fiction was... Uh, too neatly made. That was not a point of view that much convinced me because my feeling about most fiction is it isn't made at all, um, uh, much less neatly. Um, I'm not worried about anything too neatly made. Um, and another way of saying the same thing was someone said that you had tacked on a, 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 a political ending to an apolitical novel. Um, uh, in any case, what about that? I mean, what about, uh, did, did you hesitate? Um, were you anxious about doing that? Or did you say, oh, what the hell? Um, it, it, it's a part of the story. It's a part of, of not only the plot, but a very necessary reaction on Kip's part. Mm-hmm. You bring in Hiroshima, and, and at that moment, you, you loose all these demons among your, your readers. Mm-hmm. I did, I did think about it a lot. I mean, I, it was a... Uh, I thought about it a lot in terms of how I could do it, you know, how I could make it a part of the story without seeming to be tacked on. I guess I didn't succeed in some ways. Um, and I'm, I'm still not quite sure if I did it the right way or not. I mean, the problem with Hiroshima is that it, you've got something that was a complete surprise to 99% of the population. And so if you prepare for it, then how do you prepare for it? I mean, unless you have cutaways to what was going on in the States and um, et cetera. But, um, so there's this, that was that kind of dramatic problem. I mean, to talk about a deus ex machina, this was a deus ex machina. You know, this, was, this affected people who were completely stunned by this knowledge, or let alone event. Um, so then I had to try and prepare for it uh, in some way, and for me, the way I prepared for it was through that whole sequence gradual build-up of the rather, again, naive bombs that Kip is diffusing all for the first 300 pages of the novel. And the character, the kind of character who would become appalled by it, not just for racial reasons, but because he works on diffusing bombs. You know, it's, it's, it's a, the reaction by Kip is not just a racial reaction. It's, mm-hmm. it's a reaction of a, a technician who's tr- been told to do one thing and then 
the people who attend to that thing and be doing something else in the meantime. Um, so, and that plus lots of little clues about the word nuclear or the whole thing about Naples being built up and, and being a, a possibly bombed city. And there's a sequence about that in the book. So I mean, for me, uh, it's all, there, is a, there is a preparation for it, but uh, it still has to be a sort of surprise. And I'm, again, I, mean, I still think about, that's the one sequence in the book I think about how perhaps it wasn't, didn't slip into the book or something properly, but it's something I'm not quite sure how else I could have done. But, you know, it's also something that's, um, I think the, the awkwardness about it, perhaps, is because we are not used to novels which kind of turn on a political um, moment. As we, we, novels always have to tend to end with a kind of private a resolution in some way. I'm mean, Kurt Vonnegut talking about, you know, books where or, or films where, um, as long as a, the couple embraces the end, it's fine. You know, get the, the sky could be thick with bombers, but that doesn't matter. If the couple kiss at the end, that's a good ending, and that's a happy ending. You know, even if the World War Ten is breaking out, and um, I just think it's sort of difficult for us still to kind of think of us being altered by history. Mm -hmm. And um, I, mean, I, I mean, you wrote a, the last book was a book which was all about history and how the history kind of governed um, the, the lives of two people. So I mean, I, and the, in the Vietnam War. So I think you were doing that there as well. But though it did, was there from the beginning, I guess it was. Sometimes I think that, that the choice to do that is is not is is not an avoidance of the autobiographical. So much as a, in, in, in my case, and I suspect in yours, a kind of distaste um, uh, uh, for the autobiographical. I mean, I think the best way to deal with autobiography is the way you've dealt with it in a memoir. And even your memoir, we've talked, it maybe cheats a little because it's, it's less about you than it is about um, other people in your family. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, I felt, I don't know if the same is true growing up. Um, uh, in England and in Canada, but I felt growing up in this country that the dictum, the Hemingway dictum of write about what you know and know it before you write about it was a, a kind of pre a prescription for boredom. Just, a, a, I mean, a, I think that if, if, if one were, were resigned to write about one's own life, in my case, I think I would have written one book instead of seven, um, and it would have been a pretty boring book. Um, it, and the, the idea to me, and then maybe this, you come to this from, from uh, the, the, the sensibilities of a poet, but the, the idea to me that of, of, of choosing a subject that you don't know something about, that you have to learn, makes you responsible mm -hmm. for the details, makes you responsible for the information in the novel in the way you don't necessarily feel responsible when you're relying on your memory. Um, which is pretty imperfect mm -hmm. and, and, and jaded. And, but but when, you, when you've had to learn about a time you didn't live in, when you've had to put yourself in, 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 into the skin of, of, of someone uh, which is not your skin, um, I feel in, in this has helped my writing because it's, mm -hmm. it's helped me be more conscious of the fact that with any word, with any sentence, I can make an error, I can make a mistake. I must say that in, in some cases, I don't like the idea of, of having 
then these, these I don't know if, if this has happened to you, this, the, 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 you, what you create sometimes in that case is, is a reader of an expert kind, someone looking over your shoulder. In, in my case, I've written, I'm in the midst of a novel about a doctor. I've written one novel about a doctor. I'm not a doctor. So you have a doctor reading your manuscript telling you that, sorry, but the episiotomy is going the wrong way. Um, <laughs> it's not how it's done. Um, I'm, I don't know if you had a bomb diffuser um, reading over your shoulder, but, but th there's a kind of danger to doing that. There's a kind of anxiety, but I feel that it, it makes your consciousness of the details themselves more acute mm -hmm. than if you're just rather lazily relying on what you remember about something. Well, I think, it's, again, it's that thing about, you know, if you begin a novel knowing exactly what you're going to say, um, then, I mean, again, it's that question of boredom for you, but you start become very, becoming very patronizing. Your characters become puppets in a way. You know, this is a good guy, this is a bad guy. I mean, I much prefer a book where I'm still not quite sure three-quarters of the way through if someone's a, a virtuous character or not. You know, I mean, that's, that's the pleasure I get from reading someone like, say, Dashiell Hammett's uh, The Glass Key, where Ned Beaumont, I'm not quite sure if he's a, a, a fool or a, a brilliant character or not. You know? and, mm -hmm. and that's why I like characters who are not, as in Raymond Chandler, where you have the same detective all the time. You know, um, Hammett had different heroes all the time. But um, that doing research and, and putting yourself into another world or putting on the clothes of Hamlet or whoever it is, you know, um, that kind of learning process which uh, comes with the book is in one way it's one of the great pleasures in, in writing. You're learning how a bridge goes up, you're learning how to diffuse a bomb, you're learning how to, you know, about the art in Italy while you're actually writing it. And for me, that kind of research and writing happens simultaneously. I, I don't... I think various writers write different, do research in different ways. For me, I... I sort of do the research simultaneously so that there's kind of tension involved mm -hmm. with uh, how does this bridge go up and what, what are these you know, so-and-sos that are, everyone keeps talking about in, in journals. So, so that kind of element of tension um, and trying to find the right world, kind of trying to hold on to something is uh, for me uh, one of the exciting parts about writing. I, I, I agree. Maybe, maybe the impediment of... of of giving yourself something new to learn when you turn to a new book is a way of reminding yourself that um, whatever successes, um, technical successes that you're pleased with about the previous book don't apply mm -hmm. when you mm -hmm. begin something new. It's one of the things I, I admire a lot about your fiction is that even, even though in the case of the last two <coughs> novels, some of the characters from one book carry into the, into the new book, um, the novels are so completely different. Let, let's, let's turn to that question because it's, it's one that concerns a number of writers um, and, um, and, and one I've, I've thought about a lot. The idea of um, um, characters coming from a previous book, minor characters mm -hmm. or, or characters who are children in, in a previous novel of a, of a completely different setting and of a different kind. Um, these characters reappear um, several years later or in, in, in slightly different form um, in a new book. Uh, it, it has its problems, but it also, for, for those of us who read all of your books, mm -hmm. it, there's a kind of added pleasure to find 
um, Alice's daughter, grown up um, Alice from uh, In the Skin of a Lion to find, to find this girl, uh, Hannah, who is a minor character in, in The Skin of the Lion, to find her as the nurse um, in, in The English Patient. It, it, it's exciting to see uh, uh, Patrick Lewis as a kind of parenthesis, mm-hmm. um, his death earlier in the war, this being the main character from the previous novel. It's not, it's not, it's not that it's new, it's, it's that it has its, own, it, it, it has its own pleasure, but it has its own uh, problems. I mean, Faulkner was famous for doing it. Um, people who love Günter Grass can point to that, that page in Cat and Mouse where little Oscar Mozart makes his appearance banging his drum. Um, uh, there can be there can be problems too I mean let me just play devil's advocate for a moment and say um, I since I read In the Skin of the Lion before I read um, The English Patient um, this may be an imperfect uh, uh, judgment but I imagine that someone who, who reads The English Patient and who hasn't read In the Skin of the Lion might feel that the character of Caravaggio is not as fully drawn as the others in the foursome. And I wonder if that's not because you drew him so well in, in The Skin of the Lion. And I feel that I have an advantage over a reader who didn't read uh, In the Skin of the Lion in that I know who uh, Hannah's mother was. And her being a nurse and caring for the English patient it, it, it enhances my feeling about that character that, that I knew who her mother was and what happened to her mother. Um, uh, is that a problem? Do you worry about that? Um, are you, in fact, writing a kind of sequel? Or, are you, or is this maybe a trilogy in progress? Um, no, it's not a trilogy. <laughs> um, but... Um, no, I, I did... I know this was a big problem for me because I hadn't done this before. And um, I wasn't... When I began this book, I wasn't even thinking of uh, any of the characters from the previous book turning up in this one, and so it was a bit of a shock. I mean, I'd almost I had written a few of the scenes with the nurse before I realized, in fact, I thought of the idea that 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 she was Hannah, who was a young girl in the previous book. So that was rather late in the day for me to start giving her a name. Um, so it was a it was a more of a dramatic problem for me than anything else. I liked the idea of um, seeing someone in a totally different world and someone who had changed so completely that we wouldn't even recognize Hannah or Caravaggio you know, in this book because I mean, they'd, they'd, been, they'd been altered by the war, been damaged in some way by the war. So there seemed to be people I could redraw again. And, uh, whereas if they were the same people, I wouldn't want to write about them for the length of a book. Mm-hmm. Um, I did worry a lot about the question of whether they would make any sense in this book by themselves I, mean, did, I did try it out on a few people um, I just don't know about Caravaggio I, I know what you're saying it's, it's, um, I mean, he's a, partly because he was such an kind of energetic force in the previous book uh, uh, he seems much more muted and um, someone in the shadow is someone kind of Kind of fifth business in this book, kind of you know, making people do things and revealing things. So in that sense, he's uh, he's not an active character. He's uh, the chorus or something like that. In this book. The only time I thought of it consciously when I, this is an idea that, as I say, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate after the fact of reading both books. 
The only time it occurred to me in the, in the process of reading the English patient was when uh, we see Caravaggio's touch with dogs. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, well, I know about, I know about the dog that, that was the thief's uh, apprentice mm -hmm. from the previous book, and, and is that a little detail that's, that's lost to, to a reader who doesn't mm -hmm. know it? But I suppose if you do it, you can't worry about it. You just can't worry about it. I mean, uh, for me, for, I mean, talking about Faulkner, I mean, what I love about, I mean, I guess the influence of Faulkner on, on, on me as a reader was um, great. I just love the idea of you know, a whole world where uh, the major character in a novel would be a minor character in a short story. And I always, one of the things I always wanted to do was to write a kind of genealogy of Faulkner's animals. See, because, you know, the spotted horses, uh, one, of the spot, the, one of the children or the heirs of the spotted horses is, uh, is a horse that Jewel has in his eye dying. So, I mean, not just the people mm -hmm. kind of turn up again and again in novels and short stories, but the animals turn up again and again and again. And I just thought this could give me about five years of good PhD thesis here. Um, <laughs> but uh, and I mean, but and it is sort of interesting because I mean, I partly because I think I see the characters in my books are uh, not fully portrayed in the sense that you know when Alice or um, Clara leaves the story, they continue their lives elsewhere in privacy. And, and we don't see that. And in a way, I, I quite like that quality of uh, fiction that echoes life to a certain extent in that way. I know I have to kind of deal with the, the realities of a novel, but when they leave the story, they, they, they change, they alter. And um, so they come back sometimes completely changed, and we don't know how that has happened. You know, that's still a mystery, which is what most of our lives are like. Um, I, I did watch Alien 3 the other day, and I was, <laughs> I was so seated, uh, as from the point of view of someone who had not seen one and two, and does not make any sense at all. Um, every now and then you cut to this kind of, these fangs, and I mean, it all seems like this woman has got complete paranoia in this new little land that she's discovered. <laughs> so I don't know <laughs> about sequels. Well, it's natural for, for those of us who read you to, to assume that, that if you've brought characters from In the Skin of the Lion to The English Patient, those that survive The English Patient might likely reappear in a future novel. And as many times as I've read um, what I perceive as the end of Caravaggio in The English Patient, I can't determine um, whether you literally leave him suspended on a rope bridge in a lightning storm, or whether we're supposed to believe he falls. And then, he, of course, he doesn't appear in the epilogue. Mm -hmm. And this leads me to suspect that this means you're through with him. Whether he falls <laughs> off the bridge or not, maybe you're not going to tell us. But this leads me to believe that he's not going to come back anyway because he's not in the epilogue. Um, and, of course, um, the, the eponymous English patient we know has died. But... There's a difference in the epilogue between how you treat with, with Kip, which is very completely. I mean, we, we, we have a feeling in, in, in the way you tell us uh, about Kip and his family and, and the gestures he makes with his child that, that his life is complete and that you've come to the end of him. Mm -hmm. that we're not going to see him again because you've, you've, you've completed him. 
but you almost deliberately or maybe teasingly um, leave Hannah very unfinished. Um, you say of her this, uh, this sentence, she is a woman I don't know well enough to hold in my wing if writers have wings to harbor for the rest of my life. I mean, uh, as an epilogue, mm-hmm. this, is, this is like saying, here's what's become of her. I don't know what's become of her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at, at, on, an, on another level, I'm thinking, are you leaving the door open to, to, to doing Hannah again? Are we going to see her again? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I didn't uh, have that. That sentence was such a surprise to me that I almost had to rewrite the whole book. Um, <laughs> and as this was about... Now you tell me. <laughs> as this was about um, half a page from the end, I, uh, I mean, in the sense that I... I, I, don't, I wasn't there, wasn't put there intentionally to kind of leave it open. I mean, I, I, I can't see myself going back to these characters, to be honest. Um, but... It, was, it brings up something that's quite interesting in terms of, um, the, say, the narrative voice in the book. Uh, and that, that, that was probably the first time in the book that the I, storyteller, comes in and says something as blunt as that about the character. And I think it was more a case of that thing that I think all writers have, that when they approach the end of a book, they, they start fearing losing their characters. Um, they're, they're, they're leaving. Don't go away, you know, <laughs> come back for a few more hundred pages or something like that. But I think <laughs> that there was that sense of, of real loss on the part of the narrator or, or me or whoever it was um, at, as I was approaching the end of the story. And I know that when I f- uh, finished In This Kind of a Line, I felt bereft, you know, that uh, these characters had, had, had departed. And it was, it was the strangest thing for me because they were all essentially had become completely fictional characters as opposed to, say, my father, who I'd written about in running the family, who should have been a much more intimate, there should have been a much greater bond in some way. But partly because these characters had been completely created by me, uh, they were much more of the self. And um, so there was much more of a loss at the end of that book than say, the earlier books where I was writing about or against uh, or around historical characters. But, but, but you've done that, you've done that uh, play back and forth um, between a fictional character or, in the case of um, coming through slaughter, a real character um, whom you also contribute fiction about. Mm-hmm. In the case of Buddy Bolden, you, you've done that before, where you go suddenly out of the character you're writing about and, and then very... Um, admittedly talk about yourself. Um, um, there's a line in um, Coming Through Slaughter um, when you say, when he went mad, he was the same age as I am now. Mm-hmm. And it, it is that kind of parenthesis that comes like a blow to the reader. It takes us for a moment outside of the story and, and lets us know very intimately what you, the, the narrator, or what you, the author, are thinking of. You've also been really seamless in, in, in these last three works of fiction between the use of first person, use of third person, use of present tense, use of past tense. You, you, you move back and forth between these things which become sometimes cumbersome artifices with other writers very, very easily. You don't call um, 
our, our attention um, uh, to it. Um, but there's, there does seem to be this psychological uh, attraction um, uh, to the character that you sometimes get to by writing about you, by yeah. writing about yourself. Yeah. Um, there's a line here um, from Coming Through Slaughter, which I want to ask you about. Um, it's the description um, of Bolden uh, cutting himself when he begins to do the job on himself with, with, with the razor. At first, not having the nerve to cut deeper than scratches, when they eventually go deeper, they look innocent because of the thinness of the blade. This way he brings his enemy to the surface of the skin, the slow trace of the razor almost painless because the brain's hate is so much. Um, it, it's not really analogous, but in, in the English patient, Kip goes a little crazy, mm-hmm. too, for mm-hmm. a period of time. It, are you interested in, in in madness? I don't mean personally, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you don't seem to be. Um, but um, fictionally, you write about madness in, in, in a way that many fiction writers don't. Many, many fiction writers, uh, when, when they write about madness, indulge it. Mm-hmm. Um, you maintain this, 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 this curious distance where you're looking at the person being mad. Um, I don't know if I, I'm actually I mean I think at, at that point in coming to Soda I, I needed to kind of step back and, and look at the person being mad um, partly because it had to be for me a sort of um, a kind of self-revelation revelation as well as because I was writing about someone who was historical who was perhaps very unlike me I mean uh, I mean, okay, to me, um, a book like A.G.'s Last Night by These Famous Men, uh, in, the, in, the, in the great betrayal scene, when he, uh, the people who have been his hosts um, in Alabama leave for work, he goes and he just goes through his house with a fine tooth comb and just kind of opens every drawer and says, in this drawer there are three shirts, in this drawer there are photographs, and he lists all the photographs. And he just kind of does the most appalling act of betrayal to these people, and it's it's there for an honourable reason, um, but it is still a betrayal, and he knows it's a betrayal. As a, a journalist, he brings out all the big moral problems of journalism. Just before he does that, he talks about himself as a child, doing the same thing at home, and he talks about himself in a rather embarrassing way. He takes off all his clothes, and he lies on all the beds, his mother's bed, his dad's bed, his sister's bed. I mean, it's... it's uh, not the kind of thing a, a journalist today writing an expose about someone would, would admit to. And um, that's what saves, it, saves that great moment for me in that book. And um, I think I had to, at some, at some point in, in uh, coming to Sora, I had to kind of bring that, those two things together, you know, if I could. I'm not quite sure if I'm answering your question, but I think that was mm. really the reason to bring that there um, at that moment. Uh, with Kip going mad, I think um, I think he went madder at one time uh, in an earlier draft. But I, I he's I think at that point I realized it was me going madder than the way he would have gone mad. If that makes any sense. But I, I mean I'm interested in madness in the sense that uh, and I think we are all in absolute chaos. You know I mean I don't think we are. We live in a world where we pretend to be ordered and uh, have a world of order, but I think we are 
in absolute chaos in a sense. And in each of the last three novels, the the the, the crisis that that that, that um, works into the conclusion of, of these novels um, is something that that, that drives people uh, drives people to madness. I mean, mm-hmm. it is a psychological crisis in all three books, as different as they are um, uh, from each other. I had a question about um, your women characters and also about romance. Um, I don't know if this applies to the historical uh, subject, but you you write of, of Hannah in the epilogue that, that she's a woman that people fall easily in love with. And I thought when I read that that um, this isn't the first woman you've written about, about, about whom this is true. Um, that um, not only are many women in, in, in your novels thinking of... Um, um, in the skin of line in particular, uh, easy to fall in love with. But people fall in love in your novels. Bang. Uh, there's, um, uh, I won't be vulgar and say little foreplay, but there's little courtship. <laughs> it, it doesn't take a lot of time um, for Patrick Lewis to um, uh, fall in love with Clara, for Patrick Lewis to fall in love with Alice, even for Alice to fall in love with Clara. Um, and uh, Kip and, and Hannah in The English uh, Patient, um, they come together on, on a collision course. Do you think this is, is, is because um, you are romantic in nature, or do you think this is because y- you are picking these historical periods in time, and you think these periods of time were like that, that, that this was the way people met, and that this not just in literature, but this is the way, if people don't fall in love, this is the way they should fall in love, because it's very powerful in, in every case. You, uh, you do good falling in love, <laughs> you know. Uh, but why do you do it this way? I, I don't know many people who fall in love this way. Oh, I know a lot of people who fall in love this way. I think, I think this is the way people fall in love with... I, don't, I definitely don't see it as a historical way of falling in love. Uh, <laughs> you think people fall in love? Yeah, I, th- I think they do. I mean, I, I thought actually, I thought wow. the, the Kip Hannah thing was very kind of subdued and tentative. <laughs> you know, I mean, it took a long Two time. Pages. No, no, I mean, well, it, it's revealed rather suddenly. But I think there's been a lot of you know, kind of eyebrow lifting and you know, yeah. several pages yes, beforehand. Yes. That's true. That's but, true. Um, I, I certainly think the women in in uh, these books are. Um, certainly, for me, the central char- many many ways the central characters. I think you know certainly in, in the skin of a lion, Alice and Clara are uh, the ones who are in a way it's, it, the books in a way the kind of education of Patrick and uh, from from various people. But the strongest education is from Clara and Alice, I think. And even uh, Gianetta, in the case of Caravaggio, yeah. is a very yeah. strong figure. She sort of turns him around. She's the one who tells him to get the dog. Yeah. Right. And, and I think, and that's because Pat, partly because Patrick is, you know, he does grow up without a mother for the first um, twenty or thirty pages of the book. So uh, he's uh, the, the fact of meeting these two characters uh, is very strong for him. I think in in the new book, uh, there seems to be a kind of reversal. I'm not. It's all kind of after the fact where I can think back of it and try and be objective about it, but. Um, it's much more a book where the women have absolutely no power at all. They're in a, in a very much a male world. It's rather like it is like Hamlet, where there are only two women, essentially. You know, uh, 
and uh, both Hannah and Catherine are people who are um, where their love stories seem to get um, ruined by outside and very male uh, sense of uh, male sense of history. So I think uh, in that sense, it's it's much darker book as a result mm -hmm. you know, for that reason. This is a this is a question from from uh, from someone who um, structurally as a storyteller is 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 much more old fashioned than, than you, but I see in the in in the course between coming through slaughter and in the skin of the line to um, uh, the English patient that you've made a move in the direction of more conventional storytelling more of a plot, more, uh, a, a more conventional sense of chronology and flashback, even to be truly petty. Um, your use of um, uh, punctuation marks, uh, which are um, uh, non-existent in, um, in, in the skin of the line, and, and which you um, um, submit to. Uh, only in, now and then. Only now and then. <laughs> it's true, only now and then, but nonetheless you do. I mean, in actual dialogue. I noticed, though, that uh, the English patient and Hannah, when they speak to each other, there's no punctuation. I'm uh, sorry, there's no um, uh, quotation marks, as, as if almost uh, the, their conversation is so intimate, it's, it, it's almost as if they're reading each other's minds. I like that. Um, but uh, are you aware of this? I mean, or do, or do you see yourself as... as, as as coming round to writing um, a more conventional, linear narrative, um, the only way you could have written about Buddy Bolden and, and, and the Jazz Age novel and coming through Slaughter, it seems to me, was to use that collage mm -hmm. style that, that, uh, that you use. I mean, what are we likely to see next? Are we likely to see something that, that, that to us looks more experimental or more conventional? Mm -hmm. is, it, is it going to be more along the lines of, of what you're doing in The English Patient or, or, or is um, it, it going to be a novel by um, a yeah. poet which is, often, which is often what is said about those novels which are difficult to read by people who aren't poets? <laughs> I, well, I, first of all, I don't know what the next book is going to be. Um, and about the punctuation... Um, quotation marks, <laughs> sorry, I, I made that. Well, I think the quotation marks, I, I haven't wanted to use them until now because I, I was hoping someone would invent a better piece of punctuation for quotation marks. <laughs> I mean, the, the French thing, which is, I don't know what the term is, but when they have a little kind of triangle on the side, I mean, I, I like that, and I wish we could use that. It seems less obtrusive. And to me, the quotation marks always make me pause, you know, and kind of... You know, it's like Victor Borger. You have a little thing here. Uh, so that uh, I'm waiting for the, the ideal little kind of subtler kind of uh, quotation mark to be used for us. Those, those French things always reminded me of, 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 the, of the kind of dinosaur uh, beginnings of the computer. They look like some sort of signal that you're supposed to move right, the margin yeah, somewhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They don't sit well with me either. I don't. But I, I think that... Um, Perhaps the kind of seeming, uh, seemingly more formal uh, novel is the result of the fact that there's simply more people to kind of choreograph in the book. I mean, in some ways, Billy the Kid and Coming to Slaughter were 
in a way, extended monologues so that the characters could kind of speak about what's happening right now and then jump in the next sentence to what happened 30 years ago and then jump into a fantasy or a dream sequence or something mm -hmm. like that, mm -hmm. which is okay if you're just having one voice on stage. Uh, and I think with in the skin of a lion, I had a, or running the family, I guess, where I suddenly had a, a larger cast, I then had to kind of start trying to try and keep that element there, but also I had to kind of make, keep it reasonably clear what was, who was talking and when. Um, in many senses, I, I found this most recent book, it may seem perhaps, well, it probably is the most formal in one level, on one level, but um, it felt, um, it was exhausting to write because I just had to try and somehow kind of, because I was sort of, the, the narration is sort of shifting from, the, there isn't just one focus of narration, it's, you know, Hannah may, maybe with Hannah's point of view when we walk into a room, but then suddenly the point of view of the English patient will take over and it'll keep sliding or migrating from person to person. And uh, uh, that was very difficult to do. And also the whole idea of having a man in a bed telling stories and moving from suddenly this monologue into a kind of narration. So that kind of thing was really difficult for me to do. Although there is that, there is that very formal um, uh, symmetry to the beginning and end of In the Skin of the Lion, where you, 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 you tell us from the beginning that this is a story that um, um, uh, uh, someone tells a young girl riding mm -hmm. in a car, mm -hmm. and, and it's not until the end of the book that we come back to that uh, actual young girl and that guy in that car, um, which is formal um, in its own way. Um, the, the famous Lawrence remark that the novel is the subtlest, in some hands, um, the, the, the subtlest form of interconnectedness um, uh, that we know. You seem to have a, a version of that um, making order out of chaos of, of your own. Uh, in The Skin of the Lion, you say, the first sentence of every novel should be, Trust me, this will take time, but there is order here, very faint, very human, meander if you want to get to town. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, All these excuses in the middle of It's an apology, <laughs> sort of, it's, but it's nice. It's a nice apology. Um, I wonder how many of your American um, readers um, who know you only, I shouldn't say just your American readers, but who know only um, your novels, um, um, I think they don't know um, as much about um, your humor as, as, as people who are familiar with your poetry. I think that in your novels, your sense of humor is, 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 is as my grandmother would say, under your vest. It's, it's, it's sort of tightly held. Um, but um, those of us who've read your... Um, uh, elimination dance routines know that um, you have a very vulgar sense of humor. <laughs> um, and and um, uh, certainly one uh, I like. For, for those of you who don't know what elimination dances are, um, you know, it's, it's, it's when the, 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 the kind of boorish master of ceremonies stops the music and, and calls out a category uh, and if you and your dance partner or your dance partner is in that category, anyone wearing red, you have to get off the dance floor. And this continues until there's a couple left, right? 
that's an, an, an elimination dance. Um, I'm going to reveal you to, to, to these innocents here um, <laughs> who may not know of this. Um, if they didn't read this, the Cinnamon Peeler or the, or the little book um, published in Canada, um, here are some of um, Mr. Andachi's elimination dance calls. Anyone who has testified as a character witness for a dog in a court of law. Any lover who has gone into a flower shop on Valentine's Day and asked for clitoris when he meant clematis. <laughs> Anyone whose knees have been ruined as a result of performing sexual acts in elevators. Women who gave up the accordion because of pinched breasts. Any woman whose IUD has set off an alarm system at the airport. Well, thankfully you keep this out of your fiction, you know, but, but, um, um, but leading us, believe me, I am leading us to another, um, another question. Um, here are a couple of um, particularly Canadian elimination dance calls. Um, just to get us back to, to what you've said about yourself, that you were shaped uh, by a Canadian uh, aesthetic. Um, uh, here's a subtle one. Um, anyone who has ever lost a urine sample in the mail? You think that's not Canadian? Well, <laughs> if you've not lived in Canada, you can't imagine how bad mail service can be. Really. Um, this is sponsored partly by the Canadian government, you know. It should be yes. kind of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I was speaking of the mail service, though, not the government. Um, and lastly, which is clearly Canadian, anyone who has been penetrated by a Mountie. Um,